Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, go ahead and take your seats. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. Um, A very happy Advent to everyone. So, uh, you know, part of, the, part of the project over the past several years for our community has been uh, finding ourselves uh, as part of the church calendar. How many of you grew up in a church community where you would have used the church calendar? A couple of you, okay. So, um, as I mentioned last week, uh, which was Christ the King Sunday, that was the end of the church year. Today uh, is the beginning of Advent, which is the beginning of the church year, so Happy New Year to us. And um, essentially what we do is we begin to tell the story of Jesus all over again. So in Advent, we're kind of anticipating the coming of Christ until we get to Christmas, and then we have the Christmas season, the Epiphany season, then we move into Lent, and then Holy Week to Easter, and then Easter to Pentecost, and then after Pentecost, we move into what's called Ordinary Time. So this is extraordinary time, so that should be more exciting in and and of itself. And I I really love Advent. I found it to be actually quite vital to my own uh, spiritual practices to enter into all of these different seasons in the church calendar because a lot of times I think we feel rather directionless in um, how we approach Jesus, where we're going in our stories, and to have it kind of laid out specifically in that way of like we're telling the story of Jesus from the beginning culminating in Jesus as the king of the universe and then beginning over again, I think is really, really helpful. So the word advent means coming or arrival. That's what it means. And really what we're looking at in this entire season of advent over the next four Sundays is that we're kind of bringing together these three different perspectives. Number one, we're looking at the first coming of Christ, um, the physical nativity in Bethlehem, We're looking back to remember what was that like? What was the anticipation of the Messiah that was promised to Israel who was going to bring salvation not just to Israel but to all the nations? Um, Secondly, what Advent does is it helps us to think about that coming or that arrival uh, for Christ in each one of us, that we've each received Christ on a personal level just like we did on a historical level. And then finally, it also sets us up to have anticipation of the second coming of Christ, which is something that we don't often talk about, um, and perhaps we need to a little bit more, um, but especially because I think it's something within the Christian household that's so mired in uh, non-biblical images and this fear of the end of times and all of that, but really looking with anticipation and hope towards the second coming of Christ when God will restore all things, when God finishes his rescue project for the world. And what we find ourselves in Advent doing as Christians, as resurrection people, is remembering the first coming, anticipating the second coming, and living in that strange in-between space that we know the kingdom of heaven has come and is coming, but we're also kind of waiting for it to arrive. Excuse me. And unfortunately, one of the things that we do is that we conflate Advent and Christmas. We want to run ahead to the Christmas season. And I think what that does is it prevents us from really slowing down and learning how to wait. And I think a lot of times if we don't 
immerse ourselves in that Advent tradition of learning holy patience to wait for the coming of Jesus. When Christmas comes, we just miss it. And unfortunately, a lot of times that means that we get so caught up in the consumerist mindset, we get so caught up in um, the parties and the presents and the lights and the trees, none of these things that are bad in and of their own right, but um, they rob us of that opportunity to really sit and to learn how to be still and to wait for the coming of Christ that when, when Christmas comes, it truly is a celebratory moment. So that's where, what we wanna do over the next four Sundays. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna enter into um, what the Lord has for us in store today. So Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you are here, that you're with us. And Lord, this season, perhaps above all other seasons, we think about what it means for you to be with us, that you are Emmanuel, you are God with us, a God who moves through history with us, who turns curses into blessings, and who leads us into the certain future that we have, the certain hope that you will finish what you started through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So Lord, I pray as we enter into this Advent season that you would teach us how to slow down, how to cultivate a healthy expectancy, how to prepare space within our own hearts, but also within our lives at large, in our community, in the midst of our family, uh, to wait for you to arrive. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of your hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So each year, we take a slightly different angle to Advent. Sometimes we do these large concepts. Um, and this week, or this uh, year, we're going to be looking at some of the major players in that nativity story, kind of glancing at the Christ child from the perspective of the people who are uh, participating in the story? And can we in some way find ourselves uh, looking at the Christ child through their eyes? Um, of course, one of the greatest uh, Christmas albums of all time, Gloria Estefan, Christmas Through Your Eyes. Uh, that's really the motivator for this series. <laughs> Did anybody else grow up with that one? Yep, that one, uh, Amy Grant Christmas, Natch. What else? Point of Grace? <sighs> Killer. Which one? In sync? Get out of here. No, I'm just kidding. It's probably great. We all had our favorites. Um, so we're looking today at the prophets, and I love starting with the prophets. It feels sometimes counterintuitive when we're thinking about Christmas, we're thinking about joy, we're thinking about arrival. But the, the prophets are absolutely necessary for us because the prophets have us begin the story, not with this arrival, but the sense of sitting in the darkness. And what do we do when we begin the story in darkness? Because I think the prophets teach us how to wait for the coming of King Jesus with a hard-earned hope. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this week, that the prophets are the stand-in for us learning how to hope. As we saw in, uh, in what Robert read from, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, we'll be looking for, at Isaiah at the beginning of, um, of each gathering in Advent. It starts with the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And all great stories begin in the place of darkness. All great stories begin 
in darkness because there's a sense that things are not the way that they should be. And so we can think of despair as a form of darkness. And I've talked about this many times before that despair is essentially this fear that tomorrow is going to be just like today, that there's nothing new under the sun, that nothing changes. This is the status quo. This is the way that life is to be. And we cannot expect that we're actually going to step out of it. So despair is a form of darkness because darkness does not let us see what is actually in front of us. Darkness prevents us from being able to see the story move forward. And what we find time and again through the lives of the prophets is that they're speaking to a people who have been numbed by despair. So one of the major themes of the Old Testament when you read these prophets is that they're engaging with an Israel who have uh, accepted the status quo that they're always kind of being bullied by all of these other nations and empires. They're always being conquered. If it's not the Babylonians, it's the Persians. If it's not the Persians, it's the Amalekites or the Stalactites or the Stalagmites or the Samsonites, all the ites. Like they're constantly being bullied by everybody around them. And, they, and you can imagine that for the nation of Israel, they start to accept their lot in life and say, well, this is just the way that the world is. And so the challenge of the prophets as they enter into the story, especially when we're talking about the exile in Babylon um, and shortly thereafter, is how do we get these people to imagine a better world? And you probably know this from your own personal story. When you find yourself in a place of despair or when you find yourself uh, in a place of darkness, that if someone comes along and just tells you to suck it up and to have a little bit of hope, you reject it, Right? And the prophets knew this. The prophets knew if we came along and we just kind of battered people with uh, Bible verses about um, how the sun will come up tomorrow. I think that's in the Bible. Um, <laughs> everything's going to go away. Everything's going to go just fine. And this is not the way the prophets did it. How did the prophets engage with a people who were numbed by despair? Number one, the prophets taught people how to grieve. And that's the beginning. That's the first thing that releases us from despair, is learning how to grieve. Now, already this sounds like a very strange kind of Christmas message, but it's so important that we recognize this through Isaiah, through Jeremiah. I love this painting of Jeremiah by Rembrandt. It doesn't, can we maybe just bring down the lights really quick so you can get a better glimpse of it. Um, this is Jeremiah during the destruction of Jerusalem. And you see this kind of, this sense of waiting, this expectation that Jeremiah has. Uh, Jeremiah, of course, uh, we see his writings in the book of Jeremiah that tells his story, uh, but also the, the book called Lamentations, um, which is essentially five poems that go, everything sucks, everything sucks. The first one's like, ah, your mercies are new every morning, and then everything sucks, everything sucks. That's, the, that's my summation of Lamentations. Um, but the prophets taught Israel how to grieve their sense of this deep-seated sense they had that this, the world is not the way that it should be. And what happens to you and I on a personal level, and I think even on a global level, is that we, we take stock of what's happening around us and we believe that this isn't going to change. Tomorrow's going to be just like today. Uh, what's the point in having any sense of hope? 
What's the point in exposing myself to believe, to be audacious enough to believe that things could actually get better? And so we succumb to a sense of numbness that we just kind of plod through life that every day is going to be the same as the next one. And so the prophets teach us how to grieve, and grieving is recognizing the distance between what is and what could be or what should be. But ironically, it's through that process of grief that we begin to risk the vision of a better world, which is what we call hope. So the prophets take a people who have been numbed by status quo, by oppression. They teach them how to grieve. And through that grief, they actually begin to envision a better world. And I think this is what's so scary about the message of the prophets. It's a very scary thing to hope, isn't it? I don't recommend it to you. Hope is really scary to risk believing. What if it could be different? What if it actually could be better? And sometimes I think it's just as scandalous to offer somebody hope. It's such a risk to come alongside of someone who is mired in despair, believing whatever life is today is what it's going to always be, and to speak words or to offer a sense of your presence that makes them believe that it could actually get better. Indeed, a lot of times in our own culture, we see hope weaponized uh, by people who want to control others. So I think it's scandalous in a way to risk hope, but it's also scandalous to offer it to other people. And yet here are the prophets giving us these radical visions of what it's going to look like when God enters into the human story to rescue not just Israel, not just uh, the human family, but all of creation. And we see these these, you know, beautiful poems that are teaching us how to grieve, how to lament, kind of sidled up next to these amazing visions of what it's going to look like in God's Messiah or God's anointed one, or we could say God's king, kind of the embodiment of God in human form who would come to the world to offer us a new way, um, but to kind of establish and help flourish an entirely new world in the midst of the old one. And that's what we see as the pattern through the prophets in Advent. But how does the hope that that we have in Christ differ from what we tend to think of? A lot of times, I think when when we talk about hope, what we mean is, gosh, I really hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Like it could rain, it could not, but wouldn't it be nice if? And even within the Christian household, when we speak of hope, that's kind of what we get stuck on is, wouldn't it be nice if maybe, possibly, Jesus would do this thing in my life? Wouldn't it be nice if, possibly, maybe, I could be delivered from my addictions? Wouldn't it be nice, maybe, possibly, if the human family would stop tearing itself apart in the name of justice or power or whatever it might be? We have a funny relationship to hope as Christians because it's not, wouldn't it be nice if, Jesus would come and do these things. But we have this deep-seated, ridiculous confidence in us that God will follow through on what God has promised us. Perhaps nowhere do we find um, a more realistic yet radical view of hope than in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. This is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 
He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, we just spent three months on Galatians 6, 1 through 10, an incredibly dense passage of Paul where you have to break it down verse by verse. And how many of you by like the second phrase just like glazed over? You're like justified by faith. Okay, peace through Christ. All right, I got that. And it just, it's, it's one of these incredibly dense forms uh, from Paul that we all agree on it. We're like, yeah, this all sounds good. And we go, what does it actually mean? What are we really talking about? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you to work today. You're going to get in groups of two or three. And I've actually broken this down phrase by phrase. And I want you uh, to consult with the people next to you and say, what is this actually saying? What is Paul really trying to say? And we're going to break it down like this. So number one, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. <clears throat> what does that mean? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out. So, what I want you to do, I'm going to give you four or five minutes. Maybe you want to pull out your phone, start a note, whatever it is. And you're going to look at it phrase by phrase and say, what, how do I interpret what Paul is actually talking about? When he says faith, what does he mean? When he says peace, what's he talking about? When he says grace, what is that? Um, and when he says glory and so on, kind of breaking that down. Uh, John, you're, you're in an advantage because you're sitting next to my dad and you know, he's got a master's in divinity, so he'll just be able to rattle this off in the Greek. Um, but I'm going to give you four or five minutes. Take this five verses of Paul, look at it phrase by phrase, and go, what is he actually trying to say through these words? And begin to explore the connections between suffering, perseverance, character, and hope. So I'll give you four or five minutes on the clock. Go ahead and turn to the people next to you and start to break that down and see if you can come up with definitions for some of those key words. Okay. All right, let's see how you did. Yeah, it's too much. It is. This is, I think, one of the most important skills for actually doing Bible, especially if you, if you grew up Christian um, and if you grew up with the NIV, as I've said many times. I, I really love the NIV, but um, there was a theologian that once said that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and unfamiliarity breeds contempt that sometimes we can be so used to something and we read this, we're like, therefore we've been justified by faith. And we're like, great. And you're like, what does that mean though? And you're like, ah, I don't know. So it's important that we learn this skill of being able to break things down. So just real quick, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, therefore we've been justified through faith. Anybody, what do you think? What does that mean? Tina. Okay, so being in right standing with God, right? Everybody feel good about that? 
So therefore, since we have been uh, made in right standing with God, or you could say, uh, since we now have covenant membership in God's family, which is one that I like, um, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's peace? Jackie. Yeah, solidarity, that's a good word for peace. What else? This is also me quizzing you to see if you've been paying attention to me over the past nine years. <laughs> Union, togetherness, right? Shalom, peace. So since now we are covenant members of God's family, we have togetherness or solidarity with God through Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. What is grace? Grace. Something good that we don't deserve? Unmerited favor? Empowerment? Okay. There are no wrong answers, just stupid ones. Just kidding. So we have gained access by faith. Now, one interesting little side note for Bible nerds. Uh, justified through faith, is it our faith or is it the faithfulness of the Messiah? Oh. Wow, because then it changes the game, right? Since we've been justified through the faithfulness of the Messiah, now we've gained access by his faithfulness into this empowerment, this unmerited grace in which we now stand. Next one. Okay. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What is glory? Where are my Pentecostals at? Huh? Shekinah? What are we talking about? Anyone get glory? The manifest presence of God. That's right, the Shekinah, the manifest presence of God. So we boast in the hope of God's manifest presence among us, okay? Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, which means we also recognize that God is present in the midst of our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. How would anybody translate suffering? What do you think suffering is? You know it, but you've never defined it. Waiting could be. I like the idea that pain is a rapid influx of data. <laughs> That's what pain is. Um, yes, suffering, we could say, is coming to terms with a world that's yet to be redeemed, right? Coming to terms with a world that is yet to be redeemed. We know that suffering produces perseverance. Suffering is life. Life is suffering. To be alive is to suffer because we bump up against uh, limitations. We bump up against disappointments, things that things are not the way they could or should be. But we know that suffering produces perseverance. What is perseverance? Huh? Grit. Perseverance is grit. What else is it? Steadfastness, resilience, okay? So suffering produces perseverance. 
I think waiting is also a good word, right? When we talk about the, the, the uh, prophets teaching us how to have a holy patience, how to wait, that's a sense of perseverance. Perseverance produces character. What is character? Identity? Integrity? The, the things that make us a, a whole soul or a person, yeah. And then character produces hope. And what is hope? Oh. Hope is this confidence that God will do what God said he's going to do. And that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out. What is love? Love can be sacrifice, yeah. Arwen? God? That's the technically the right answer, I guess. What about love as uh, steadfast commitment to well-being? Okay. So Cornell West said, love is the steadfast commitment to the well-being of other people. Justice is what love looks like in public, and tenderness is what love feels like in private, which I think is a very good definition. So God's love, his steadfast commitment to us has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has also been given to us. And I think that this, this chain of thought, that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, is one of the best visions that we have for what we're talking about in the season of Advent. Because the hope that we are called to embody is not blind optimism. Oftentimes, this is what we confuse hope with. We think hope just means blind optimism. We think it means kind of escaping from suffering. Indeed, we have a terrible relationship with suffering in our society. We feel indignant that we should have to experience any kind of suffering. And most of our lives are spent um, feeling incensed that we have to suffer and doing everything we can possibly to avoid suffering. That's the, that's the best that we can often hope from for modern life. And, that, and when you begin to hear that, you, you hear it in so, much, so many uh, commercials and conversations and television shows. You see, all we're trying to do is avoid suffering because we don't feel like we deserve to suffer. But if there's one thing that all of the great religions have come around and, and rallied towards, it is that suffering is inevitable. You cannot avoid suffering. Well, to, to mitigate that, you can't avoid certain kind of suffering. There is suffering that you uh, incur upon yourself because you refuse to accept the fact that there is suffering, right? How many of you, you have suffered because you refuse to accept the fact that there is suffering? So you kind of double up the suffering. It's like this internal suffering. But all the great religions agree, suffering is inevitable. It's what we choose to do with that. So rather than getting incense that we have to suffer. It's saying, where is God in the midst of this? The glory of God, the manifest presence. How does God reveal God's self to us in the midst of suffering and what is possible? What, can, what is God capable of doing through that sense of suffering? So the hope we are called to embody is not blind optimism. It is first rooted in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. It's recognizing 
that we've been made members of God's family through Christ, through his faithfulness. But then secondly, that kind of hope that we're called to is forged through suffering and perseverance. We are rooted in Christ. We have been given this new identity. We've been given this new name. But then we walk through the suffering, the inevitable suffering that comes from a broken world, and we learn how to persevere because we have the spirit of Christ within us. And this sees us encouraged and strengthened until the end. I would be so bold as to say that if you do not learn how to persevere through suffering, you cannot lay hold to hope. If you, and I'll say it again. If you do not learn how to persevere through suffering, personal suffering, global suffering, whatever it is, you cannot lay hold of hope. A lot of times, again, um, what we see now is, especially kind of in like the pop psychology world, do everything you can to avoid discomfort. Um, you can label things toxic. Um, you can do things in the name of self-care and mental health, but it's all about avoidance of hard things. But every single uh, psychological assessment and school will tell you we only learn how to grow we by being exposed to hard things, by learning how to suffer well. And I'm, I'm worried that so many of us, and definitely the generation coming up behind us, have been so inoculated against hard things, against suffering, that they don't actually produce the character to meet the necessity of a broken world. And that we don't have that sense of what we've talked about a lot recently, of emotional resilience or anti-fragility, where we learn how to grow strong because we're learning how to persevere. And as Christians, we recognize that that is the work of the Spirit of Jesus within us. So in a very particular way, for us to attempt to avoid suffering, to run away from it, to try to escape it, is us resisting the work of the Spirit of Jesus within us, to walk us through. It's not that the Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and jumps us over pain and suffering, even though a lot of our Pentecostal friends, that's what they would kind of hope. It's just moving from glory to glory, and we don't have to deal with any of this. It's that the Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and walks us through suffering, and it becomes this refining fire where we learn perseverance, where we develop character, specifically as the character of Jesus. We find that we come through the other side stronger, but that strength is a very interesting strength. It's not that we are calloused and hard. It's that we have tender hearts but thick skins. And I think that's what it means in many ways for us to have character, is that we have these tender hearts that are protected, but we have incredibly thick skin to deal with whatever comes up against us. And it's only then are we truly able to lay claim to real biblical hope. This is what the prophets were teaching Israel to do, and it's what they speak to us today in this Advent moment. So as we live squeezed between the first coming of King Jesus and his second coming, we recognize our waiting is different from the prophets of old because we know the true shape of God. Those prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and others, they knew, they had these radical visions from God of what was going to happen but it was all still um, rather esoteric for them. 
They had these visions, but they didn't quite know what it was going to look like when God chose to move. And indeed, what we see in the Christmas story is that many people were not prepared for what God looked like when God arrived on the scene. In fact, they rejected that vision of God because it didn't match what they thought it was going to look like for God to rescue the world. We see it through the religious elite who thought that God was going to come um, as this conqueror who was going to uh, kind of beat up the Roman Empire, reestablish the nation of Israel, and make them uh, a military power, powerful force. There were others who thought he would come as a proper king of an elite family or whatever it might be. And they, they had a hard time accepting the reality that God chose to come into the world, living on the outskirts of society as this tiny, innocent infant. So the prophets only had glimpses of what we witness in its fullness when we look upon the face of Jesus. So Advent is a time for us to become reacquainted with the shape of God, that God is lying in a manger exposed to the elements, that God is tender and vulnerable and in the least expected of spaces. And we live in this place where we look back and we remember the first coming of Christ. And we look forward in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And that vision of the shape of God is what gives us the courage today to anchor ourselves, to learn how to suffer well, so that that perseverance actually creates in us character so that we can lay, uh, lay hold of a true and genuine hope. And so how do we persevere? What does it look like for us to live squeezed between these two monumental moments in history in the first coming of Christ and the second? I think at least one way we do this is through unceasing prayer. In his, uh, in his journals, he traveled through South America. Henry Nouwen wrote this about what prayer, the role of prayer within our lives. He said, prayer is the ongoing cry of the incarnate Lord, the present God, the human God, to the loving God. It is eternity in the midst of mortality. It is life among death, hope in the midst of despair, true promise surrounded by lies. Prayer brings love alive among us. So let us pray unceasingly. So prayer anchors us in the present moment. And Prayer teaches us how to suffer well, how to persevere, to live in that holy waiting where our eyes are open. We're not sugarcoating the world around us. We're not sugarcoating our own lives, but we still have this audacity to believe that God will do what God has said God will do. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I wrote um, a prayer for us today. I wrote a liturgical prayer where <clears throat> I'm going to pray. And there's going to be a time of response for you to do a little bit of dialogue with the Lord. And we're going to be looking at these different arenas, suffering, perseverance, character, and hope. And through that prayer, I hope that you're, you're, you're seeing that, that holy patience begin uh, to work its way in and through you to recognize where you are in your own story, which in turn 
places you in this far larger story um, of Jesus. So let's pray. God of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all who waited with a holy patience for the arrival of your Messiah. We give glory to our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been justified through faith, through whom we have peace with you, and through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of your kingdom come. It's just where you're at right now. I want you to give thanks for what you have been given through King Jesus. Lord, in your mercy, we confess to you all that we suffer. We feel the deep divide between what is and what should be. Let us not succumb to the darkness of despair. May we not seek to avoid the inevitable suffering of a broken world, but rather help us to offer our suffering to you for redemption, and you respond. So when you take a moment and talk to God about the suffering that you're experiencing right now in your own life. Lord, in your mercy, grant us perseverance to hold tightly to your promises when suffering seems to overwhelm us. Teach us how to relinquish control and trust that you are working for our good, especially when we cannot see it, and you respond. So take a moment and confess to God the way that you try to avoid or escape suffering in your life. What are your coping mechanisms? What is your way of running away from suffering? Lord, in your mercy, manifest in us the character of Jesus, who when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges, judges justly. Reveal to us that our true selves are found in being more like him, and together we pray. Christ, as a light, illumine and guide me. 
Christ as a shield overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me, Christ beside me on my left and my right. This day be within and without me, lowly and milk, yet all powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all powerful. Christ is a light, Christ is a shield, Christ beside me on my left and my right. So when you take a moment and and ask God for a specific character quality that you see in Jesus that you want to embody. Bestow upon us a living hope, a vision of what is to come in the restoration of all things that seeks not to escape the world nor avoid its pain. Give us eyes to see what you see in the coming of your kingdom as you turn mourning into dancing. And together we say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Almighty God, Give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may arise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.